Welcome to Fireside Breakdowns. I'm John. And I'm Robin. Together, we research and break down complex and even controversial topics facing our society. We always aim to bring you honest analysis backed by research to skew our bias towards what can be factually supported and to make it clear when we're giving our opinion versus speaking about actual research. We're human, we have blind spots and biases, and they will show through. However, our goal isn't to convince you to think or see things our way. We want to build a foundational understanding of these complicated topics so that we can address them together. We talk about some pretty heavy stuff on this show, and we tackle topics that might feel polarizing. But we do that because we have an important goal in mind. We want to change the way that people have hard conversations. And we think that we can do that using research and discussion to create common understanding. And since you're here, we hope that you want the same thing. So we suggest getting comfortable and maybe having a good drink on hand as we work through this stuff. Welcome to our fireside. again to keep working our way through the uh, the martyr made thread we introduced to you last week um, if you're here because you saw a post on social media or someone shared the link with you and you haven't heard our last episode here's a very quick recap for you a couple of weeks ago a co-worker, a co-worker of mine shared with me a twitter thread that he feels conveys clearly how he and other conservatives feel in today's political and media climate On its surface, the thread is an attempt to explain the thoughts and feelings of the rioters who stormed the Capitol on January 6. But in totality, it serves as a step-by-step guide to the progression of conservative politics over the last five years. I said it last week and I'll say it again, this coworker and I have almost nothing in common politically, but we do respect each other and we value the opportunity to have conversations from different perspectives in good faith, and with the intent of trying to find the places where our ideologies actually intersect. He's listened to the show before and given me really good feedback that I've used to shape the way that we talk about issues. And probably because he knows we do this podcast, he asked whether or not we felt like any of the facts asserted in the thread were disputable. Now, if you're drawn to a podcast like this, you probably believe that Every asserted fact, especially by a political commentator, is worth investigating. We sure do. So we decided to go fact by fact through the rant and investigate everything he claims to be a fact. And I think that catches everybody up on everything. (laughs) But before we get back to the mission of fact-checking Daryl Cooper, who is martyr made on Twitter... I want to take a couple of minutes here to address my coworker's feedback on our last episode. I really appreciated that he took the time to respond and to be really honest about how our first episode in this series made him feel. He said, "Oh, I'm I'm playing the yeah. role of yeah, of yeah, yeah. You've been cast this week. as conservative dev guy five three zero nine. Excuse me. Okay, I want to do him honor with my reading. Good." <clears throat> You know that thing people do where someone will say something and the person listening, instead of trying to understand the feeling or meaning behind the words, picks apart the words in order to invalidate the feeling? 
If I'm being honest, I think that's how your last podcast episode felt to me. I'm not sure how you can do it differently. I think it's inherent in fact-checking because you can't fact-check something that is unstated, only the claims that are being made. Maybe just fact-checking isn't enough, though. Maybe what's needed along with the fact-checking is an emphatic restating of a claim that validates the feelings behind the claim. Without that, all the fact-checking in the world will not change those feelings. It will just make people feel misunderstood and their feelings invalidated. And I can absolutely understand what he's saying. Admittedly, I personally am not a very empathetic person. It's something that I try to work on consciously, but I am highly logical and I have a really hard time putting myself in other people's feeling spaces. So it makes sense to me that some of the treatment of the conversation lacked a feeling of empathy. But here's where I struggle. I worry about the dangers of validating a feeling that's based on false information while we're still trying to draw attention to the truth. I understand that there are so many people out there who believe that you can't trust anything the media says anymore. And I understand that there are people out there who just want America to align with their values, who are afraid that the world that they're living in is about to become the opposite of the one that they want, and who don't understand how to exist in a system that is not designed to serve them specifically anymore. But I also believe that we're all responsible for our own feelings, and we're all responsible to validate the truth behind our opinions. And when we choose to let others do that validation for us, and then we find out that we've been led astray, we're responsible for acknowledging that and adjusting. I think that can be very hard for a lot of people because on the first part of it, it would require accepting that we were fooled. And ego is a hell of a drug, and it won't let us feel that way very easily. Um, I think I understand where people who feel like um, Martyr Maid or the people he's representing and uh, your coworker feel. I, I understand why they feel that way. I don't agree with the road that led them there. But if I were somebody who believed those things, if I did see these stories being told to me as as truthful or uh, at the very least truth adjacent, um, <laughs> then, you know, of course I would feel absolutely frustrated and, and riled up about what had happened. The problem is when we start letting our feelings dictate how we think and the actions that we're going to take, we're prone to some pretty devastating missteps, or we, we can be. It won't always lead to that. Um, but feelings are, I mean, primal. They're literally what kept us alive for the longest time, and we're still kind of as a, as a species working out how to deal with these basic emotional drivers in a world that we keep trying to be trying to base on logic. And it, it's just, we're not designed for it. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I certainly don't, I don't think either of us want to make somebody feel bad for, for, for the way they feel. Um, but I agree with you. We can't, 
I don't think it's it's ethical or or fair even to those people to um I don't want to use the word coddle. That's the wrong word. Right. To to cushion the way we address misinformation um because because addressing the misinformation itself could be offensive. Um, but I think we, we've mentioned it a couple of times. And what we try to do here is we address the facts that we can find or that we can address yeah. as we, as we, as well as we can, we never claim to be unbiased here, but we do really try to, to anchor what we say in fact, and, try to understand that a lot of the information is going to be difficult to accept and that there's very strong emotional connection to it and that it's okay to be upset. Um, but you don't let it, you don't let somebody continue to hurt themselves because they, they're afraid of stopping whatever they're doing to hurt themselves. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it makes perfect sense. And like we talked about last week in our opener, we want to do our best to let people know that we understand how easy it is to follow a logic chain like that. This is persuasive rhetoric 101. This entire thread is is textbook persuasion. And y- and the whole thing was intended to persuade you. Like, you're not dumb. It's not It's not a failure on your part if you were persuaded, if you get caught in the emotion. But it is your responsibility then to follow that emotion up and make sure that when you're validating your own actions going forward, when you're justifying your behavior, you can do that based on reality and not just on feelings. Yeah. My mom growing up would always tell me if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Mm -hmm. And I try to bring that mentality with me whenever I'm reading about something that really confirms or, or plays into something that I believe, you know, Um, if I hear something and my first thought is like, well, yeah, that makes sense. I knew it. I've, I'm working on, I'm not perfect at it, but I'm working on training myself to be like, well, wait a minute. Right. That's a flag to me. Yeah. I didn't question this at all. I should slow down and I should look at this. And like you said, if you, if you have gone down this path of, of this (laughs) bad logic, unfortunately, um, that's not a it's not a sign of weakness or anything it's literally what these people are paid to do they are operatives that are paid to get you to agree with them in order to fulfill their own purposes mm-hmm. and that's that's not that's not a partisan statement that's literally anybody yeah. <laughs> who's 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 speaking for a a campaign or 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 a uh, administration that is yeah. their job it is to convince you or even even on the side of an issue right if they're speaking on the conservative side of the infrastructure bill they're getting paid to have their butt in Laura Ingram's chair to talk about that bill and it's their job to convince you to agree with their perspective right so we have um 
when in, in our company, when we are given feedback, we have this kind of process that we follow. Um, and we call it the LVA process. So you listen, you validate, and you adjust going forward to that feedback, whether that's uh, feedback about something practical and factual, or whether that's feedback about how somebody experienced a situation. So um, I just wanted to make it clear that that going forward, we're doing our best to do that, right? We hear you and probably other people like you. Um, we're validating that you probably did feel all of those different ways. And we are going to adjust by doing our very best to try to validate your humanity and your goodness while at the same time challenging you to tackle misinformation and challenging you to base your feelings on fact. Yeah. 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 I think that's something that gets lost a lot and I'm glad you said it. Um, believing any particular way, I don't think makes you a good or a bad person. It just means that that is where the arguments have led you. And I don't think I ever want to send the the message that believing something makes you bad. It's it's what we do. It's our actions that yeah. define our character. Yeah. So interlude. As we make our way through some of the more of these facts in this in this thread, please know that we are trying to incorporate some empathy and acknowledge those feelings where we can, but we're not going to mince words when something offered as truth turns out to be a lie. That does a disservice to you and it does a disservice to us and what we stand for here. Yeah, so. exactly. Back into this mega thread then by uh, Mr. Cooper or Martyr Maid. Um, that's his handle on Twitter. So tonight, we're going to jump a little out of order because <laughs> one, of the, one, of the, one of the claims that he made is just so big, it, it takes so much time to get through. Um, so we wanted to tackle it now, uh, mainly because I was able to find a really good <laughs> formula for addressing it. So <laughs> we liked it. I'm um, not going not to make it sound like some grand scheme or anything. Um, so we're going to address, uh, his set of Cooper's set of claims, um, about the sticky situation with the Bidens and Ukraine. The claim reads as, as Robin will so yes. eloquently read out for us. Yeah. The claim directly from Cooper's Twitter says, we now know that Trump's request for Ukraine to cooperate with the DOJ regarding Biden's financial activities in Ukraine was in support of an active investigation being pursued by the FBI and Ukraine AG at the time, and so a completely legitimate request. All right. This is, this is another one that could, I already said it, it, this could easily be an entire series unto itself. I mean... Huge. I, it's so much, guys. I had 50 tabs open at one point. I'm not even joking. Um, we are going to dive into this Ukraine, Biden, Burisma, Trump conspiracy milieu. Um, understand that we're not going to be able to get to all of it in this episode. Right. We're going to hit the early portion of it pretty hard because that's basically what this concerns. The logic chain that led up to... Um, to the, the quid pro quo that got Trump impeached <laughs> the first time. Um, so let's let's look at that tweet, the claims made therein, and use that to frame this discussion. Um, so like we just read, Cooper says that we, we now know 
that Trump's request for Ukraine to cooperate with the Department of Justice regarding Biden's monetary activities was in support of an active investigation by the FBI and the Ukrainian prosecutor general together and is therefore completely legitimate. A, a very quick note there. In Ukraine, they don't have an attorney general. Um, that is the phrasing that uh, Cooper used. It's actually a prosecutor general, yeah. but they essentially fulfill the same function. So you'll hear us saying prosecutor general. It is the same thing. Right. We just didn't want to start this whole thing being particularly pedantic. Um, yeah. It's just a terminology <laughs> it's difference. clearly false. Right. Done. No, <laughs> right. That would, that's, that's not what we do here. That's really bad. Bad faith argument. All right. So I'm going to preface this next section by stating that you may want to check out our post at firesidebreakdowns.com with the show notes um, because we're going to get into a lot of dates and names here. And the names, uh, if you're not from the culture, can be difficult to keep in your head. They're not familiar to us. And so uh, I've, I, if I were just listening or watching this, I would lose track myself. Um, so we do have the transcript up on our website, firesidebreakdowns.com. So you can pull it up and follow along with it or just read it independently if that helps you better. Um, we're, we've simplified it, like I said, as much as we can. Try to bring this episode in at our time limit. We're already going to go over, yeah. I can tell. 100% going over. Um, but it's worth it. But honest, because honestly, deconstructing this one is a doozy. It's just loaded. So enough of that. <laughs> There's only so much we can do to pare it down to get the relevant information in there. I think we have prefaced this enough. Right. Um, boil it down for us, Robert. Okay. Essentially, this condenses down into two primary claims. A, Trump requested that Ukraine look into the Bidens and two, that the request was legitimate because there was an active investigation being carried out by the FBI and the Ukrainian prosecutor general. So in order to address these issues, we think that it is best for us to look at the chronological breakdown of events to start things. Uh, believe it or not, this whole conversation actually started in 2014. On February 22nd, 2014, Ukrainian President Viktor Yanukovych was ousted from power during a populist uprising in his country. Yanukovych had been elected with the aid of Russian patrons, and after his ouster, he fled on back to Russia. Notably, he came to power with the assistance of political consultants Paul Manafort and Rick Gates, which are names that most people probably recognize and probably wish that they didn't. Uh, Manafort and Gates worked for Yanukovych's party of regions. And so I guess arguably you could say that this whole thing began in 2006, because that's when Manafort and Gates started working as consultants for the party of regions. But we're just going to say 2014 here. 14. <laughs> so his removal, uh, Yanukovych's removal, triggered a wide-ranging investigation into all kinds of corruption in the country by Ukrainian officials. And this also triggered a later investigation into Paul Manafort's foreign lobbying and political work by the U.S. government. And then on March 1 of that year, Russia invaded the Ukrainian peninsula of Crimea and annexed it. And that began a years-long conflict that will increasingly put pressure on the Ukrainian government as we go through this story. Yep. So that brings us to May 13th, 2014, when Hunter Biden, the son of then-Vice President Joe Biden, 
joined the board of the Ukrainian energy company Burisma Holdings. Burisma is owned by an oligarch named Mykola Zlachevsky, one of several subjects of the Ukrainian corruption probe kicked off by the exiling of Yanukovych. Note, the investigation of Burisma was already occurring when Hunter Biden joined the board. Still, this was an awkward fit. Because Hunter's previous career path did not really show experience in the energy sector. That's not to say that he was without qualification. He is a lawyer. He worked as executive vice president at MBNA, uh, then three years at the United States Department of Commerce, and then um, he became a lobbyist. Then in 2006, George W. Bush appointed him to the board of directors of Amtrak. He resigned from Amtrak in February 2009, resumed lobbying, and then was counsel at the law firm uh, Boise Schriller and Flexner LLP up until he was hired by Burisma in 2014. I bring up his curriculum vitae <laughs> um, because part of the, con the conspiracy around this whole debacle makes it seem like Hunter was wholly unqualified to be on any board let alone Burisma's, which is a bit of a stretch. Clearly, he had high-level experience and he had sat on boards before. Now, that doesn't mean that this wasn't an attempt to influence the White House. But it is, I think, misguided to assume that not having experience in the energy sector means Hunter didn't have business and legal experience that would be useful to Burisma. It's just a bridge too far to point to this and act like it's a smoking gun on its own. Right. I mean, I think most of us who have been in the workforce have gotten jobs that we weren't exactly qualified for. It happens. It happens. I wish that I had like, um, you know, the voices of the announcers in like a train station or the airport where you get the like, ding, we are now entering the 2016 presidential campaign cycle. Uh, because that's where the story is going next. So uh, President Trump announced his candidacy for president in June of 2015. And then our next important moment in this story happens in September of 2015, when the FBI reached out to the Democrat, Democratic National Committee to let them know that at least one of their computers had been compromised by Russian hackers. Later that month, on September 24th, the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, Jeffrey Pyatt, called out Ukrainian Prosecutor General Viktor Shokin in a speech in Odessa, Ukraine. He pointed to a glaring problem that threatened the good work that regional leaders were doing in the country. He said, the failure of the institution of the Prosecutor General of Ukraine to successfully fight internal corruption, that's, that's what he called it. And he made the United States' position on that corruption very clear in that speech when he said, the United States stands behind those who challenge these bad actors. So as a quick recap, the stage as we're moving into the end of 2015, Ukraine is in the midst of a massive power shift on the heels of a populist uprising, leading to incredible pressure to identify and uproot corruption in the country. Hunter Biden has joined the board of a Ukrainian company that is owned by an oligarch that is under investigation. And Russia has been identified as having hacked into DNC systems. Oh, and also they're fighting a war with Ukraine now over Crimea. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We forgot to put that little detail right there. Yeah. 
So in December of that year, what would become the pivotal piece of the corruption claims uh, quietly passes with little national attention <laughs> at the time. On December 9th, 2015, Biden, alongside many Western leaders, began calling for Shokin's removal. As part of U.S. policy, Biden's, Biden tells Ukrainian leaders to fire Shokin or lose more than $1 billion in loan guarantees. In January of 2018, Biden detailed his pressure at an event hosted by the Council on Foreign Relations, saying, They were walking out to a press conference. I said, Nah, I'm not going to, or we're not going to give you the billion dollars. They said, you have no authority. You're not the president. I said, call him. Biden says, I'm telling you, you're not getting the billion dollars. I said, you're not getting the billion. I'm going to be leaving here in, I think it was about six hours. I looked at them and said, I'm leaving in six hours. If the prosecutor is not fired, you're not getting the money. Well, son of a bitch, he got fired. <laughs> and they put in place someone who was solid at the time. Right. And we should clarify, in that whole little section, we're talking about Joe Biden, who was then vice president. Uh, there's going to be a lot of Biden talking here. So we're going to do our best to remember to make it clear which one we're talking about. But it should be pretty yeah. clear from context. Yeah. So importantly about this conversation, this was definitely in line with a much broader pressure campaign to reform Ukraine after the removal of Yanukovych. Viktor Shokin was viewed by many leaders as effect ineffective and beholden to the Ukrainian president, who was then Petro Poroshenko, and the Ukrainian oligarchs. Poroshenko had appointed Shokin to his position, and Shokin had failed to pursue many corruption investigations including that investigation into Burisma's owner, Mikola Zlochevsky. I practiced that like nine times. It's okay. It's okay. Not a very common consonant combination right? in, in English. Zlochevsky. <laughs> to put it another way, removing Viktor Shokin as Ukraine's prosecutor general probably did nothing to protect Hunter Biden from any kind of an investigation. And it likely increased the chances of any investigation into him by those officials. The goal was to find prosecutors who were more likely to chase down accusations of corruption. And even further, Joe Biden was acting in accordance with the U.S. government, alongside European leaders and the IMF and the World Bank. In March 2016, in testimony to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, former ambassador to Ukraine John E. Herbst said, by late fall of 2015, the EU and the United States joined the chorus of those seeking Mr. Shokin's removal. And he said that Joe Biden spoke publicly about this before and during his December visit to Kiev. During that same hearing, Assistant Secretary of State Victoria Newland stated, we've pegged our next billion dollar loan guarantee, first and foremost, to having a rebooting of the reform coalition so that we know who we're working with. But secondarily, to ensuring that the prosecutor general's office gets cleaned up. As if to underscore the level of international cooperation going into this pressure, on February 10th, 2016, after Biden's threat of withholding the $1 billion loan guarantee, the International Monetary Fund threatened to halt a bailout program for Ukraine unless the country addresses its corruption issues. 
Finally, on March 29th, 2016, after a long international pressure campaign, Shokin was fired from his position by Ukraine's parliament. And things at that point had proceeded to a place where the U.S. was considering starting its own investigation into Burisma Holdings and its owner, Mr. Zlo- oh man, I just screwed it up, Zlochevsky. <laughs> Coincidentally, as far as anyone can tell, that same day, March 29th, 2016, Paul Manafort was hired by Donald Trump's presidential <laughs> campaign to help in securing Republican National Convention delegates. A reminder, in case you've forgotten in the deluge of narrative up until this point, Manafort worked on behalf of the ousted and exiled former president of Ukraine in order to help that man get elected. Two months later, in May 2016, uh, Yuri Lutsenko replaced Shokin as prosecutor general of Ukraine. Lutsenko immediately pursued a hard line against Burisma, and in January 2017, Burisma announced that Lutsenko and the courts had closed all legal proceedings and pending criminal allegations against both the owner of Burisma, Zlochevsky, and his company. Save for one investigation into the sale of an oil storage terminal, which we include just for completeness of information at this point. It's at this point that the U.S. guaranteed that $1 billion in loans. All right. Here's where things get a little finicky. On May 2nd, 2018, the New York Times reports that Ukrainian officials had decided to halt assisting special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation out of concern that doing so would harm their relationship with Trump's administration. By this time, Manafort was facing prosecution on charges of money laundering and financial fraud due to taking millions of dollars worth of under-the-table payments during his time working for Ukraine. A considerable amount of activity occurs between May of 2018 and April of 2019, including several meetings between Rudy Giuliani and Shokin and Lutsenko and several other actors. The purposes of those meetings seem to be to discuss corruption in Ukraine and allegations of illicit payments from Burisma to Hunter Biden. By this time in 2018, Ukraine was in the throes of a four-year conflict with Russia-backed separatists kicked off by the annexing of the Crimean Peninsula. And so this is the pressure situation that is forcing Ukraine to seek military aid from the United States and part of why the United States was issuing that billion-dollar loan in the first place. All right, now we're about to flash you back to what feels like a high school history test. It's going to be names and dates coming at you really fast. Again, go check out our show notes if you need some help keeping them all straight. I know that I did, and I probably will multiple times. Yep. So, in March of 2019... Lutsenko announces that he will reopen his investigations into Burisma and Hunter Biden. Because of the timing here, many believe that this announcement was an attempt to earn favor with the Trump administration, but we may never know the real motivation, so we won't claim that we do. In April 2019, Volodymyr Zelensky, a former TV comedian, is elected president of Ukraine with 73% of the vote. He immediately inherits the ongoing conflict with Russia, as well as the battle against deep-rooted corruption with Ukrainian government. In May 2019, 
Trump's kind of sort of but not really attorney Rudy Giuliani <laughs> says he will travel to Ukraine to push for these investigations into Hunter Biden and Burisma, quote, because that information will be very, very helpful to my client, Trump, and may turn out to be helpful to my government. This trip was canceled two days later <laughs> right. due to a pretty severe backlash um, over the propriety of a personal aid to the president seeking damaging information about a political opponent from a foreign government. Ooh, interjection. Yes. Now, those of you who joined us in the last episode might remember our conversation about opposition research. The practice of researching a political opponent to find information to use against them in the course of a campaign. And to some folks, it might sound like that's what Giuliani was trying to do there. But it feels really important to point out that there's a difference between hiring a private research firm, which is usual practice, to gather dirt on your opponent, and leveraging state relationships with foreign governments in order to do so. Neither one of them is ethical, but one of them is absolutely an abuse of power. It's also very illegal. <laughs> yes. Cannot receive aid from a foreign government for your campaign. Right. That's that's like in black and white. Yeah. That's just super duper illegal. However, despite this, two associates of Rudy Giuliani did, in fact, travel to Ukraine at that time. They were Lev Parnas, 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 and Igor Fruman. And they met with the head of the Ukrainian secret police, Ivan Bakanov. Ivan Bakanov. Ivan. It's probably, I slipped into my Croatian training there a little bit. <laughs> um, although it's Jovan. Um, the purpose of this meeting, according to Parnas's lawyer, was to tell Ukrainian officials that they had to announce investigations of the Bidens or else Vice President Pence would not attend Zelensky's inauguration, which is a pretty severe political blow. Zelensky needed the basically authority that is granted by having foreign heads of state recognize you. Um, it gives you it gives you some soft power, some cachet. Um, even more importantly, though, is the very hard power. The U.S. would freeze aid to Ukraine if they didn't announce these investigations, something that, as we've detailed, was desperately needed by Ukraine at the time. Right. In the middle of all this, <laughs> which I feel like we keep saying in the middle of all this, which should just explain like how much of a nine circles of hell death spiral this whole situation is, because everything yeah. is in the middle of everything else. So in the yeah. middle of all of this, on May 16, the prosecutor general of Ukraine, Yuri Litsenko, who you'll remember him from like 15 minutes ago when this whole thing started, he says that there's no evidence of any wrongdoing by the Bidens. Remember, he opened that second, he reopened that investigation. He wanted to take another look at it. Well, then in May, a few months after he reopened the investigation, he comes back and says, hey, there's no evidence of any wrongdoing by the Bidens. And he did this even in the face of potential loss of aid from the United States that could occur from upsetting the Trump administration. So, I mean, that's a bold move. Shout out to that guy. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, even though he went. We're not going to get much into it here, but he 
pretty quickly went down the path of corruption. Dude, like <laughs> after that, this whole thing is a fucking train wreck. Oops, this whole yeah. thing is a train wreck. Not a spicy edit. <laughs> That'll be on YouTube, but not in the podcast. Exactly. So despite uh, this pronouncement made by Lutsenko, on May uh, 19th, in an interview with Fox News, President Trump explicitly referenced Biden's efforts in Ukraine, saying, Biden, he calls them and says, don't you dare persecute. If you don't fire this prosecutor, the prosecutor was after his son. Then he said, if you fire this prosecutor, you'll be okay. If you don't fire the prosecutor, we're not giving you $2 billion in loan guarantees or whatever he was supposed to give. Can you imagine if I did that? Yeah. It's so, <laughs> so hard to even that was read. Trump. That was Trump talking as Biden. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> like Trump on if his that, own is hard to, hard to follow. And then him trying yeah. to be someone else in the middle of a conversation and then yeah. getting facts wrong. It's just, it's, it is what it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah he, he did say like sick. He did say $2 billion yeah. on guarantees. 1 billion. He admits that it was whatever. Yeah. But it, that wasn't an us. That was a, that was a direct quote. Right. You'll see the quotation there. marks around that in the, uh, in the show notes. I promise I can't actually read. <laughs> so this whole statement really, it feels out of touch with the facts on the ground at that time. Litsenko, at considerable risk to his own country's well-being, came out to clear the Bidens of all wrongdoing in the Burisma investigation. Joe Biden, pushing for the firing of Shokin, in no way aided his son Hunter and actually stood to make things worse for Burisma in the probe. Further, the Burisma probe under Shokin was dormant at the time, according to U.S. and Ukrainian officials, and there was no evidence that it focused on any actions by the Bidens. On top of that, Biden never called for the end of the Burisma probe, just for the installation of a prosecutor who would actually, you know, prosecute stuff. Crazy. Despite this, another thing, despite this, despite this, despite a lot of like available information, people were just doing whatever. Yeah. Um, so despite this, on July 22nd, Shokin told the Washington Post that he was removed over the Biden issue, saying, I will answer that the activities of Burisma, the involvement of his son, Hunter Biden, and the prosecutor general's office investigators on his tail are the only, I emphasize, the only motives for organizing my resignation. Other Ukrainian officials have cast doubt on this. <laughs> as well as all of the actors that we listed earlier who were all pushing for the removal of Shokin. Um, and the Ukrainian officials have, have reiterated that the investigation had long been dormant when Shokin was removed. Uh, Daria Kaliniuk of the Ukrainian Anti-Corruption Action Center said, Shokin was not investigating. He didn't want to investigate Burisma. Shokin was fired not because he wanted to do that investigation, but quite to the contrary, because he failed that investigation. This finally, finally brings us to the event in question, though not the end of the road by any means, on July 25th, 2019, Trump and Zelensky speak on the phone. Now, prior to this call, like immediately prior to it, Zelensky's top aide, Andrei Yermak, 
had had a conversation with Kurt Volker, former special envoy to Ukraine. Volker makes it clear that a desperately needed trip to Washington, D.C. for Zelensky hinged on the announcement of investigations into the Bidens. He did this via text. We have these records. He literally texted, heard from White House, assuming President Z convinces Trump he will investigate slash get to the bottom of what happened in 2016, we will nail down date for visit to Washington. It is with this knowledge that Zelensky's conversation with Trump begins. Now, in the course of this call, Trump repeatedly notes how, quote, good the United States is to Ukraine, saying, I will say that we do a lot for Ukraine. We spend a lot of effort and a lot of time, much more than the European countries are doing, and they should be helping you more than they are. Germany does almost nothing for you. All they do is talk, and I think it's something that you should really ask them about. When I was speaking to Angela Merkel, she talks Ukraine, but she doesn't do anything. A lot of the European countries are the same way, so I think it's something you want to look at, but the United States has been very, very good to Ukraine. I wouldn't say that it's reciprocal necessarily because things are happening that are not good, but the United States has been very, very good to Ukraine. <laughs> cool. After repeatedly reminding Zelensky how important USAID is to Ukraine, Zelensky comments that Trump is correct. The U.S. does provide the most aid and then transitions the conversation to defense aid, saying... I would also like to thank you for your great support in the area of defense. We are ready to continue to cooperate for the next steps. Specifically, we are almost ready to buy more javelins from the United States for defense purposes. Okay. Following his statement of wanting more military aid, Trump immediately, immediately proceeds to ask Zelensky to open two investigations one involving CrowdStrike, which is an internet security company that probed the DNC hack in 2016, and the subject of an entirely different conspiracy theory that involves the DNC server, despite there being multiple DNC servers, but eh, we digress. And then the other investigation involving the Bidens. His exact words were, I would like you to do us a favor, though, because our country has been through a lot, and Ukraine knows a lot about it. I would like you to find out what happened with this whole situation in Ukraine. They say CrowdStrike. I guess you have one of your wealthy people, the server. They say Ukraine has it. Zelensky agrees, but... Insert. He doesn't agree that they have the server. Right. He agrees that, he agrees that the United States has been through a lot. Yes. Good clarification. Sorry, I wanted to clarify Important. That. Yeah. So he, he agrees that the United States has been through a lot before, again, trying to bring that conversation back to aid, saying, we are great friends, and you, Mr. President, have friends in our country so we can continue our strategic partnership, which Trump follows with commenting about the Lutsenko firing before launching into his second request. The other thing, there's a lot of talk about Biden's son, that Biden stopped the prosecution, and a lot of people want to find out about that. So whatever you can do with the attorney general would be great. Biden went around bragging that he stopped the prosecution. So if you can look into it, 
It sounds horrible to me. Trump repeatedly suggests Attorney General William Barr and Rudy Giuliani will be involved in working with the Ukrainian government on the investigations. Zelensky tells Trump that his yet-to-be-named new prosecutor general will look into the situation, specifically to the company that you mentioned in this issue, referring to Burisma. And scene. Okay, we know that that was a really long story. We know, we promise. But we had to tell the whole thing in order to answer the claims that Cooper's making here. Remember that those are, number one, that Trump asked Ukraine to investigate the relationship between the Bidens, Burisma, and Shokin, and that it was a legitimate request because it was a joint investigation between Ukraine and the FBI. So first, Trump did ask Ukraine to investigate. But the crucial piece of context here is that his request was not the first investigation into Burisma. Prosecutor General Lutsenko investigated the company and its owner in 2016 and concluded all but one of its investigations in 2017. And that final holdout was about the purchase of an oil storage terminal. In May 2019, after reported meetings between Trump advisors, but before Trump formally asked Zelensky to investigate the Bidens, Lutsenko again stated publicly that there was no evidence of wrongdoing by the Bidens. So, yeah, he asked. But it wasn't the first, and I don't, it, was, it wasn't even the second. It was, he was asking for a third investigation into Burisma and the Bidens. Further, you have to consider the broader context from which Trump was, quote, asking. And this is where I personally take issue with this particular tweet. Zelensky, under immense pressure to secure aid from the West to continue fighting a war with Russia that started in 2014 and combat the corruption in his own government, was not in a good position or really any position to refuse any request Trump made. Remember, literally immediately prior to the phone call, Zelensky's top aide was being told to announce investigations or the U.S. would freeze all aid. And then in the phone call itself, anytime Zelensky brought up defense aid, Trump asked for something. But first, I have a favor, though. So... Yeah. That's about like, in my opinion, really, that's about like holding a gun to someone's head and asking for them to hand over their wallet. Yeah. The second part of this claim is that Trump's request was legitimate because there was already an ongoing cooperative investigation between the FBI and the Ukrainian prosecutor general into the scope of which this request was relevant. Um... But this claim's tricky because we're not exactly sure what investigation Cooper is referencing here. It could be the ongoing cooperative relationship between the FBI and the National Anti-Corruption Bureau of Ukraine, in which the FBI and various representative organizations of the EU provide training and support to the Ukrainian organization as they work to fight corruption in the country. We think it also could be a reference to the Mueller investigation, but that had concluded before Trump's request to Zelensky, so the timing of that is off. I mean, 
if you think you know which investigation he's talking about, please, for the love of all things, tell us. This precise issue is why we are so meticulous about sourcing our episodes so that any one of our listeners can check our work, so that you can be very, very clear about what we're referring to, and so that you can feel empowered to present counter-research. In fact, if that's something you'd like to do, let me just tell you how you can do that. I am the queen of segues. So good. It's actually super easy to do any of those things that I just mentioned because we have concentrated so much of this on our website. If you just go to firesidebreakdowns.com, you can read our show notes, check our work. You can drop us a contact form. We have a great form on there. We would love to hear from you. You can even find links to our social profiles where we talk around, talk about some background information and we share extra resources and quotes. And you can find a link to our Patreon if you would like to buy us a cup of coffee so that we can chat with you via email about all of your counter-research, about all of the things that you've discovered, or maybe, just maybe, we could get, like, I don't know, a subscription to the New York Times so we could learn all about this mystery investigation between the FBI and the Ukrainian prosecutor general. All of those things can be done on firesidebreakdowns.com. Dot com. Awesome, Ronnie. So good. So much punch, so much yes. power. I'm actually shocked because we're bringing this one in under the time limit. Oh, uh, we haven't stopped talking yet. We haven't, <laughs> but we've got we've we've got a solid like 10 minutes to to get through the good news and stuff. And like I thought this one was going to run a lot Dude, longer, I'm pretty so. sure I talked at like one and a half speed through some of those dates. Just listen to me on like 0.75x, guys. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like it was pretty good, even if I do say so myself. So let's get to this good news because Lord knows we need it. The seven-day average of daily reported first COVID vaccination doses in Arkansas, Mississippi, Louisiana, and Alabama have more than doubled based on the seven-day average of vaccinated people. And that is a big big deal. These states are generally conservatively governed, and both the leaders and the residents of these states have been very hesitant to receive the vaccine or to promote the efforts of the CDC and other organizations to slow the spread of COVID-19. This is incredibly important as we learn more and more about this virus and its most recent iteration. While we are seeing that vaccinated individuals can contract COVID and even shed enough virus to transmit it, we do know something. We do know that at this time, the single strongest protector against severe disease is full vaccination. Something like 97% of people currently hospitalized with COVID in the United States are unvaccinated. And 99999 percent of the deaths are from unvaccinated individuals at this point. Yep. People in, so. in my small circle uh, have lost two, two people this week um, that, you know, I don't believe they had to lose because yeah. we know that the, the vaccine is protective against severe disease and that's, that's its whole purpose. Yeah. Um, and Again, I, I, 
I see stuff out there that's like, well, um, you know, it's only killing people with comorbidities. If people would just take care of themselves, if they would just work out and eat right and, you know, let nutrition be their, uh, their doctor, that is, I understand where that's coming from. Um, a lot of these people saying that are members of <laughs> gyms that I have been part of. Um, but I don't think that they can recognize um, how privileged they are right. to be able to do those things. Um, a lot of people can't afford fresh food. I mean, we all know it, period, point blank. Fast food's cheaper than going to the store sometimes, mm-hmm. especially McDonald's. And even when you do go to the store, the chips and the cheap processed foods are so much cheaper than produce. Yeah. Um, and that's so, not even accounting yes, for the time privilege, the time yeah, to the prepare fresh to food. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. And money to work out and right. time to work out and, and on and on and on. It is a lot. And they're just people who flat cannot afford it in one way or the other. Um, so please, if you haven't go out, talk to your doctor. If you are concerned, get the facts from a reliable source and, and get vaccinated, uh, do it for, for everybody. It's a civic duty, I think. Yeah. So any final thoughts before we shut this one down for the night, Robin? Um, I just I want to reiterate again that the whole purpose of this podcast is to have these hard conversations and for us all to be able to learn from each other as we fight against spin, you know. So as you're listening to this, if it made you angry, if you feel like we're picking apart your worldview, I'm sorry, but also I'm not sorry because that feeling gives you the opportunity to chase it down and validate for yourself with real factual information the things that you believe in and that hold up your perspective. Yep. And remember, when you read that thing that makes you go, yeah, I knew it, that should be a flag. That should be a warning sign to you. Robin, you want to take us out of here? Sure thing. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for hanging out with us. We did manage to come in under time. We're so proud of ourselves. We cannot promise that as we continue to tackle this long thread, but we can probably promise you fewer names and dates in the next episode. So fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. crossed. Uh, I think actually we're going to get a chance to talk about some things that are a little bit more in my wheelhouse when it comes to uh, spin and media presentation. So until next week until our next episode be kind to each other listen to each other and more importantly than anything take care of each other (laughs) 